Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Emergencies Act inquiry wraps up in Ottawa this week. What else are we going to learn? Well, we'll talk about that. The Ontario Health Coalition has officially launched a constitutional challenge against the province's controversial Bill 7. We'll get details from the Executive Director of the Health Coalition, Natalie Mira. And the triple threat of flu, COVID-19, and RSV continues to plague Ontario's healthcare system. Is it time to put mandatory masks back in place? All coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we told you the other day, uh, finally, after a number of weeks of testimony, the Emergencies Act inquiry will wrap up later this week. And, uh, well, they, some would suggest saving the best for last. The Prime Minister is going to testify, and, and, and the Deputy Prime Minister uh, and other key people from the PMO will be uh, up in front of the lawyers as well. Uh, what are we going to learn, and, and what can we discern from what we've heard so far? There's a, a great piece that was actually in the uh, Toronto Star yesterday, and it's, it's on the editorial pages of the Hamilton Spectator today. Uh, it says, with Trudeau set to speak last, Emergencies Act inquiry uh, enters the grand finale. Uh, Susan Delacourt, of course, national columnist for the Toronto Star, is the author. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Susan, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Nice to be back, Bill. It kind of the pre-show, I guess, to the Prime Minister and, and uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland uh, was Bill Blair uh, testifying yesterday, and also uh, some interesting uh, observations, I guess, and, and, and some submissions being made uh, by some of the other key people in this. Uh, and and it, it, I guess, addresses what a lot of people have been asking about, you know, what was going on in their heads when they made this decision. And as you point out in the piece, Susan, uh, contrary to what some people thought, th I guess they did have some discussion about perhaps negotiating with the people that were involved in the and, and for some reason, we don't know that why, it, which is the why that's hanging over right now. We don't know why they decided to abandon that idea. Yeah, this, this has been, um, and there are so many um, interesting things that have come up through these hearings. I'm absolutely addicted to them. And next week, I'm going to have to go into some kind of withdrawal um, <laughs> because it's... They, we are learning so much about how government works, uh, the, the sheer volume of, of things that we've learned. But w among them, to your point, we have learned that there was ongoing discussion at the police level, and now we're learning at the political level, too, of maybe we should have a meeting of some kind or a negotiation of some kind with the protesters. I, It's not clear which protesters they would be talking to, because as we've heard, there are multiple groups here, multiple aims, multiple demands. So I think probably it just bogged down in, in confusion over how to talk to them. But they, they really did get to a point where first the Ontario government, uh, Doug Ford's government, and then the federal government floated an idea of, of actually talking to them or promising them that they would talk to them at some point. And, and as you point out in the piece, that brings its own set of problems, doesn't it? Uh, you know, do you talk to the protesters that just wanted the mask mandates gone? Uh, do you talk to right. the protesters that were there to uh, boot Justin Trudeau out of office? I mean, you know, who who's in charge here? Who's calling the shots? Yeah, the, the former Ottawa police chief called it a hydra, which is a multi-headed mystical beast. And I think I, I think the clerk of the Privy Council used those words last week too, is that nobody knew who was in charge. Certainly the week we had of listening to the protesters at these hearings too, it was apparent that there was no one person in charge. There was no 
one charismatic figure and no one demand. No, as you say, some people were here because of mask mandates. Others were here to get rid of the prime minister and replace him with something. Others were here to kill him. Uh, we've heard a little bit about that. Uh, and still others were here because it felt like a fun party. So that that makes a, a, a very difficult situation, even that much more difficult. The other thing I found intriguing about that, uh, with the testimony we've heard over the last couple of days as well, Susan, uh, is that there was dialogue between the Ford government and, and the Trudeau government about this. Maybe not at the highest levels, but I mean, they were talking about perhaps you know, collaborating to try to find some resolution here. Yeah, it's too bad that Doug Ford has decided not to come to these hearings because it really would be interesting to hear from him how much he and and uh, the Prime Minister talked about this. We've seen some notes, and I think we're going to hear more about that from the Prime Minister's people uh, this week, that there were conversations ongoing between Ford and, uh, and Trudeau, and a little bit of frustration from the federal government that, that Ford, Ford's people wouldn't come to these tripartite meetings with Ottawa and the federal government. We've seen very colorfully the Premier talk about that he was going to be um, how do I put this for a family radio show? Up there, a word with a wire brush. When uh, <laughs> the, the phrase he used for for getting the police to, uh, you know, not direct them maybe, but inspire them. There's a, a, so many contradictory pieces of information. I mean, we heard, of course, yesterday too, uh, from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Director uh, David Vigneault, uh, that said that you know he advised the Prime Minister to use the Emergencies Act. Uh, even though, and this is where we get into, I guess, you know, some, some splitting hairs, I guess, in some people's minds, maybe it didn't meet the actual definition in the act. Uh, maybe it didn't meet that threshold, but he still thought it was worthy of, of, of enacting this as Bill Blair did as well. Uh, does, does that to any extent vindicate the government for their actions? It was a, it, it was a big moment when we learned that yesterday, it was a very big moment because what certainly the convoy protesters and, and a lot of the, the people who were opposed to the emergency act were saying was this didn't fit the CSIS definition of an emergency. It didn't, it, it didn't, it didn't fit into the CSIS act. What we are learning without going too much into the weeds here is that the, that act itself was insufficient or it couldn't capture what was happening in Ottawa. And the, um, I, I've heard this described, I think, accurately, is the CSIS director was wearing two hats. He was, in terms of CSIS and strict definitions of the law, he couldn't, it, it didn't fit the threshold of a national emergency. But as a law enforcement professional, and seeing, he said, the array of information in front of him, it did qualify as a national emergency, and he did advise the prime minister. That was sort of a, that was a big moment uh, yesterday, when when we learned that yes, he if he'd been asked for advice, and that was the advice he gave. You know, you don't get much more security professional than the head of CSIS. We did hear the same last week from the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor Jody Thomas, a very impressive woman, uh, who also said, "Yes, it was my advice that this was a national emergency." So I I think. Some of the drama of, has gone out of this because we're hearing that at the highest levels, the prime minister was being told, yes, this is what you've got to do. So I, I think 
the Prime Minister's testimony is going to be sort of the coda to all of this. What we're all looking forward to is seeing the convoy protest uh, lawyer asking the Prime Minister questions. That, um, that will be maybe not instructive, but it'll be entertaining. <laughs> as, as Blair's testimony was uh, earlier yeah. In, yeah. In, in the week. Uh, I, I had an interesting discussion with somebody who's been in, in law enforcement and security for quite some time. And he said, this kind of reminds me, listening to the testimony that you're writing about in, in the piece, Susan, it, like uh, the, uh, the police always get involved in the debate of uses force. How much force should actually be applied to each situation? And he says, you can write policy on this all you want, but that's just stuff on paper until you're staring down the gun. Or you got the guy that's that's armed with with some, you got to make your own decisions. And he's suggesting, I don't know if he was just trying to justify what the government was doing, but he says, you unless you were there and unless you saw what was happening, you can't understand exactly what the magnitude was and, and some of the elements that went into how this decision was made. And I, I thought it was a pretty valid argument. Yeah, I think, you know, I live in Ottawa and uh, so it was very real to me what was going on here, not to make this personal, but I, I do say this to people who weren't in Ottawa at the time or, or the Ambassador Bridge. It was pretty scary. Um, you know, never mind the hot tubs and, and everything. There was, a, there was an element of menace around Ottawa that, that can't be discounted. And you know, we're hearing this in, in bits and pieces from people and, and life being paralyzed in Ottawa. I know people like to think of Ottawa as, as, as a place to beat up on, but it, it, was, it, it, it was a pretty scary time here. And for the police as well, you know, I'm sure you're, uh, to wade into a crowd like that was really um, frightening. And I know, you know, reporters, again, we don't get a lot of sympathy for this, but but the media was being threatened. It was um, we had uh, security people with our reporters down there because it was just a it was a frightening time. Yeah, I, as we watched the coverage, and I, as a news junkie, of course, we were spinning around from network to network watching what was going on, and uh, it's and I, I know some of those reporters, and as you say, trying to wade into that crowd with some of the abuse that was being hurled at them. Uh, and you don't know where how far that abuse is going to go. You know, are they just going to yell at you, call your names, or are they going to take it to the next level? Uh, and you're defenseless. And yep. so it's, you know, unless you were there, that goes back to that argument as well. Uh, I want to ask you one other thing. Because I, 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 I'm, I'm seeing a lot of stuff on social media about this, and a lot of the criticism of this is, uh, I think, probably some partisan elements to this, is that, oh, come on, this is a liberal-appointed judge, this is a liberal-appointed... Uh, but I'm watching this as you are unfold, and uh, I think the lawyers are doing a pretty good job of covering all the the, uh, the, the aspects of this and the cross examination that's going on too. I mean, even if it is somebody who was on the government side when these decisions were made, uh, they're, they, they, I, I thought the legal teams are holding these guys' feet to the fire. I I think that Justice Paul Rulo has done a, a remarkable job, and if nothing else, the convoy organizers and the protesters have had their say. They've had the say that they were demanding back in February when they were blockading Ottawa. They have had, they had a whole week to, uh, to say what they want, and, and they've been given... R- Rouleau is, is, is an interesting figure. He, he doesn't take any nonsense, but he's been very patient, and he's given everybody a hearing. I, you know, I, I think somebody did call him a liberal judge at some point, and he, he snapped. And said that you know I have nothing to do with the, the liberal government. He's a judge, you know, and um, and a distinguished one too. And I, I think he's he's uh, it's really 
uh, impressive to see how he manages this. This is we've never seen anything like this. Public inquiries usually have years to go through all this. This is six weeks, six very very intense weeks, and uh, I've learned a lot. And it's I, I think everybody has has come to it with the best of intentions. Well, I, I know where you'll be Friday, <laughs> as will I, uh, watching exactly what's going on. Uh, as I say, our leaders, uh, re, re, listeners in Hamilton can pick this up. It's in The Spectator today or yesterday's uh, Toronto Star, and it's still online. Great piece. As always, Susan, thank you so much thank for this, you, and uh, stay thank well. You. you too. Susan Dattelcourt, who is the columnist, and of course, uh, up in Ottawa for the Toronto Star, National Affairs columnist. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've been following the news, uh, you know that there have been a number of pieces of very controversial legislation that the Ford government has uh, moved on very quickly uh, ever since the re-election just a few months ago. And uh, we're going to focus a couple of them uh, because uh, there's some pushback and some pretty significant pushback on some of these. Uh, For instance, the Ford government uh, could be headed to court over a story that we told you about first uh, yesterday. Uh, It's about the More Beds, Better Care Act that they passed uh, in the summer, effectively forcing some elderly patients into nursing homes that they did not choose. Global's Matt Carty has some details on that one. Long-term care minister Paul Calendra saying today, Bill 7 is not going anywhere. Obviously, uh, Bill 7 is about uh, the right care in the right place at the right time. We've said that right from the beginning. Those comments coming after health care advocates announced plans to launch a constitutional challenge over the bill, calling it fundamentally discriminatory against the frail and elderly. The legislation was introduced back in August, but it is just coming into law now, including the part that charges patients $400 a day if they refuse to move to a nursing home. The province says the law is meant to help ease pressure on hospitals, but the Ontario Health Coalition says the crisis is due to the lack of funding by government. That crisis in our hospitals is the making of policymakers. It's the making of this government and previous governments by choice. Matt Carty, Global News. Perspective on this from uh, some of the folks that are bringing this uh, forward. Uh, One of them, of course, is uh, Graham Webb. Graham is the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly and uh, uh, one of the uh, key uh, members and an agency, by the way, that's done an awful lot of advocating uh, for elderly and frail folks over the last little while. Graham, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Nice to be here. I, I got to tell you, when I saw the story over the weekend, my first impression was, what, what took you guys so long? But I mean, you got to get your, your ducks in a row to be able to, to do this effectively. And, and I, I know that takes some time. Uh, but you and others have expressed some concern about that right from the beginning when the government introduced this whole idea, didn't you? Oh, yes. We've long been concerned about this type of legislation, and we were very surprised, Bill, when the uh, government rammed this through the legislature without any real public consultations. It was done on a very fast time frame, and those of us who work in this area were left wondering what the bill would be and what the regulations would look like until they actually came out. We had to wait and see what would happen. Uh, Natalie Mira is with us as well, Natalie with the Ontario Health Coalition, uh, and we've talked to Natalie many times about the concerns about the frail and elderly. Uh, Natalie, one of the criticisms that that I've seen uh, from many people, and this dates back to when uh, the Ford government first introduced this idea of the legislation, is yes, we have a hospital crisis. We all know that. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. But does this bill just offload that crisis onto long-term care facilities? Well, for sure. The long-term care homes actually are in a staffing crisis that that is truly unprecedented as well. It's not so much in the news now because it's invisible. You know, it happens behind the, the four walls of the home. But, I mean, they're in total staffing crisis. And when the government came out with the legislation in August, and, of course, they passed it, you know, dead of summer, 
when in an extraordinary session of the legislature, they don't usually sit in August. And But, I mean, if they're to do those things, it's to put things through when people really aren't paying the attention. They're off having their summer, you know. And so I was really worried that people weren't going to be paying attention to this. Um, but the long-term care homes spoke out against it. They said, listen, we, we're in staffing crisis too. We, you know, and anyway, there aren't any beds to take these people. So what's happening, of course, is that they go in as a crisis admission into a long-term care home. Um, and the only homes that would have beds, which might be homes with terrible reputations or homes that are far away from their loved ones, um, and, and that's a, but, but Natalie, that's that's a very important point. I know you and I have talked about this, uh, when there was a lot of discussion about long-term care facilities in the crisis, <laughs> there is an immense difference in the level of care in some of these facilities. And it's not just private versus publicly owned. Uh, it, it, it just goes down to how they're looking after the patients in these facilities. And, and as, as a number of parents of or, uh, sons of parents and daughters of parents have told me, uh, yeah, they'll find me a bed, but it's probably in one of those facilities where nobody wants to go to anyway. That's why the bed's available. And then I'm worried about the long-term care that my parents are going to get. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, it does, just to say, it does often kind of come down to for-profit versus not-for-profit because, you know, um, the the for-profits have had the high, much higher death rates in the pandemic and they take profit out of care. Obviously, that's a problem. But, uh, but yeah, the homes that um, have the shortest wait lists are by and large the for-profits. They're the ones, we actually looked at the list across the province. We went through every wait list to see and they're the ones that the military went into and found just you know hair raising conditions of living and care in those homes they're the ones that have absolutely horrific reputations um you know bad inspection reports bad google reviews bad reputations or they're far away generally speaking i mean there may be the an exception here and there and that's where they're forcing patients into against their will like without their consent which is the you know as graham will tell you is the fundamental um egregious thing about this legislation well and graham in, in past discussions we've talked about level of care and we know that the the, the staffing crisis is still very real in long-term care facilities yeah and i know the government's going to come back and say yeah but we've added you know uh funding now to get people through the program and certified yeah but for everyone that walks in the front door there's three walk out the back door so they just can't do this anymore because of the, the, the level of care and the, and the working standards that are there so as a result and both of you have talked about this in the past, Graham, uh, you count on family members to fill those gaps. And they're there sometimes six, seven hours a day looking after their loved ones. Now, all of a sudden, if the loved one's going to get shipped 70 or 80 or 90 kilometers away, that level of care and that, that family support may not be there anymore. Well, that's correct, Bill. It'll be very isolating for older adults who are sent to a home uh, far away from their home where their uh, spouse or partner, their um, adult sons and daughters, their friends, neighbors, aren't able to visit them because, you know, people, when they're in long-term care, they need more help often than the home can provide. And when they're sent to a home that they don't want to be in, uh, that may be far from their home, they're they're uh, doubly isolated and they are more at risk. And not only that, uh, uh, sometimes the home that they're sent to might not want the long-term care resident anyway. Their needs might, their care needs might be too high for the home. And uh, so they might be unhappy in a home 
uh, that doesn't want them to be there in the first place. Listen, I got stacks and stacks of emails and stories from people who have concerns about the facility in which their their loved ones have, have been. And, and I know that the minister, Minister Calandra, said, well, but there's so much more for them there. They, you know, they can they can play Crokino and there's all sorts of other things. But that's if, if an assisted living is different from other people who need more extensive and intensive care. And and, and those facilities oftentimes are asked to, to offer both of those. And, and that's where the shortcoming is. It's one thing to say, you know, okay, you can live in your own little apartment there. Uh, and come down for lunch and dinner, and you can do whatever you want, go to movie night and everything else. Not everybody who's in those facilities is able to do any of that stuff. Well, I think that uh, more alternatives to hospital and long-term care are needed both for higher care persons and lower care persons. You know, um, hospital care is not just acute care. There's also chronic care and continuing complex care. One of the problems is that people who require ongoing hospital care are being uh, shoved into long-term care homes uh, because chronic care beds and, and CCC beds are being closed and not replaced. And so, you know, these uh, people who are designated ALC, they're difficult to place because homes uh, receive the application. They say, we can't, we can't take that person because we can't serve them. And now under Bill 7, we may find that the government decides for both the home and the the home and the uh, ALC patient that this is where they're going, even though their care needs might be too high. At the other end, there is a huge gro uh, groundswell of support for alternatives to long-term care, for community-based uh, residential services, for uh, services to uh, come in and to have small homes where people could live other than long-term care as well. And the government needs to put more resources into all of these options. They need more resources into hospitals. They need more resources into long-term care. They need more resources into home care. And they need to put resources into alternatives to long-term care that they're not doing already. Well, uh, we wish you both the best in this. I, I, we've had some concerns about this raised on the program. I, I know the immediate response from the minister uh, when this uh, story came out just a couple of days ago uh, was, we're not changing anything. Well, maybe the courts might have something to say about that too. Uh, Natalie, Mira, uh, Graham Webb, thank you both for this, and we'll stay in touch as this unfolds over the next little while. Bill, very thank good. you very thank you, much. Thank Thanks you, for your advocacy on this. Well, uh, I, I, I thank you guys, because uh, I hear these stories. I mean, I see this. Anybody who's got a, a loved one in one of these facilities, and you see some of the conditions, and some do it better than others, but there's still some shortcomings and some concerns in many of these facilities, especially, as, as Graham mentioned, if all of a sudden, you know, your, your mom, your dad, your loved one uh, get shift off 70 or 100 kilometers away, uh, can you go visit them every day? Maybe not. There's a, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, That and they didn't want to hear public support or they didn't want to hear any kind of public input into this before they passed it into law sadly you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml i want to talk about uh, the well flip-flop that, uh, that the Ford government has done when it comes to greenbelt notwithstanding the fact that uh, he he vowed on more than one occasion that he was never going to touch the greenbelt uh he's now doing that uh but this is an email that uh, that we received uh just a, a well a couple of weeks ago now when the government decided to do this flip-flop and uh the author of this is, is rebecca wissens of course from wissens law who sponsored this program and she writes 
as one of the members of the first Greenbelt Council in Ontario, representing the greater Hamilton area and business concerns, I spent a significant amount of time and energy discussing the need to remove some of the areas designated in the Greenbelt initially and switching them with other areas outside of the Greenbelt as trade-offs. Now, this was to be discussed at the five and 10-year reviews of the Act. I spent five years on the Council and the concept of trade-off was never palatable at that point. Perhaps, though, it's a concept worth another look. It was very clear then that some sections of the Greenbelt, for instance, along Highway 6 south of Hamilton toward the airport, did not belong in the Greenbelt, but other areas where prime agricultural or wetlands should have been included. I think it's time to start getting creative and not entrenched with this idea that once property is taken out of the Greenbelt, no other lands can be placed within it. Uh, a very insightful piece from somebody who was there at the beginning and, and, and talked about what was going on and the fact that, yeah, there can be some flexibility here, but it's got to be justified flexibility. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be the driving force behind what the government is doing right now uh, with their flip-flop on the green belt. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Luna Kerfan, who is an associate professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thanks so much for this. Thank you for having me, Bill. I'm perplexed as many other people are, and I'm, you know, I'm not an urban planner. I had spent some time on city council, but I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about how cities are going to grow and where they're going to grow right now. Uh, I saw the value in the green belt way back when, when the McGinney government first brought this in. I think it's very valid. Uh, I think that you know you can have some discussions about, uh, you know, lands that that may or may not be suitable for agriculture, uh, but to arbitrarily simply say, yeah, we're going to do this now, and coincidentally. Most of the lands he's identified have, have already been bought, and, and, uh, and a significant amount of them, of course, have made contributions uh, to the provincial government. It tells me that the, the decision here seemed to be based more on politics than, than on ethics or, or practicality, really. Um, first and foremost, in addition to being a researcher at the University of Waterloo, I am first and foremost a citizen of this province. It's my home. So I care. I agree with that email that you've read, that every plan has to be revisited cyclically. That's very important because things are not static. Uh, cities are not static. Um, rural and agricultural areas are not static. So we definitely need to revisit plans every now and then. However, I am genuinely concerned about what I am witnessing at the moment. It's very concerning. It's not even chipping away, it's eating away at our democratic institutions. It's putting power in the hand of politicians, taking the power away from the experts, the technocrats who know how things work and why we put certain policies in place and putting them in the hands of individuals. That's anti-democratic, that, that takes away the transparency and the accountability, the basic tenets of democratic systems. That should concern every citizen in Ontario. The powerful mayor's um, uh, notion, the, the, bill, the details in Bill 23 that put the, the power uh, in the hand of ministers as, as opposed to the democratic systems that we have, all of this is very concerning. Now, Bill 23 itself, as in principle, definitely we need more homes. No one disagrees on that. But let's go to the basics. 
what we need is a particular type of homes, affordable and what we call the missing middle. We have an, single family homes, we have high rises. What is missing is what's in the middle. Is this bill 23 tackling that? No. We are living in an age of climate, climate crisis. It's not even change anymore. It's, it's, it's happening. We are all living the heat domes, the extreme events. How can this bill take away the authority from conservation authorities that were established in response to the loss of life we faced with Hurricane Hazel? Um, all of this is baffling. How can we decrease the amount of green and blue spaces in our cities to allow for more development? We are all witnessing urban flooding. How do, do we remove uh, uh, site plan uh, controls from municipalities? Well, let me, let me jump in on that one, Professor, if I could, because that's one of the things that I think really bothered me and many others is uh, the, the government justifies this move by simply saying, we have to get these homes built quickly. And you're right. I think everybody agrees. Yeah, we need to do that. So we're going to eliminate the red tape. But that, that stuff they're eliminating is not red tape. It's the checks and balances that previous governments and local governments have put in place to make sure that there are no land grabs and misuse of land. That, that's what they call red tape. It basically says, okay, there are no guardrails. You can pretty much do what you want wherever you want, and you don't have to get permission from anybody. And that's that's why I'm genuinely concerned. I'm truly baffled. Look, I grew up in a country that lacks democracy. And I'm, I chose this country because of its democratic systems, because of the checks and balances that exist in it. And it really is concerning. I speak as a citizen that this is genuinely concerning. People should be concerned because if you build, you, you have, like, look, Ordinary citizens, their home is their major investment for people who work hard to earn their income. You want that investment to appreciate, not depreciate over time. The lack of checks and balances will create a hodgepodge of development leading to substandard type of building that will depreciate rather than appreciate over time. We're not even talking about issues that have to do with appearance, with with flooding, with just that is should be concerning to citizens. Your Absolutely homes are your should. biggest. Uh, uh, your homes are your biggest investment. You want to make sure that this investment is the right investment. Checks and balances are there to ensure that your investment appreciates over time. Well, we need to have this debate and we this discussion, and uh, you know, all governments, including provincial governments, need to be accountable to this too. Professor, I'm short on time today, but we're going to continue this discussion. Uh, thank you so much for your input into this, though. It's greatly appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Professor Luna Kerfan from the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very uh, uh, active and, and, and I think passionate discussion that's going on about masking and mandatory masking uh, with uh, some of the concerns, uh, the health concerns we've got going on with COVID, flu, and RSV circulating all over the place. Well, Ontario's health minister uh, says that it's a personal choice to wear a mask. Uh, a masked Sylvia Jones, as a matter of fact, is defending the majority of her progressive conservative colleagues who don't wear masks in the legislature, including Premier Doug Ford. I think that what we are seeing is people who are making determinations based on their personal circumstances 
personal choice is important here, and we don't, we we should not be passing judgment on people who wear a mask or not wear a mask. Uh, so that's the personal choice argument, which is pretty much, uh, you know, what uh, the medical officer felt uh, Dr. Kieran Moore said the other day. Uh, and I know the controversy was he was, I guess, the next day photographed at some reception or something without a mask on. And I saw very few people wearing masks there, too. So is it uh, do as I say, not as I do? Uh, and is this really the effective way, the most effective way to do this? I think we need to get some perspective on this. And our next guest can offer that for us. Uh, he is Thomas Tenkate, who is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Uh, Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, thank you for having me. A lot of controversy about this over the last couple of days since uh, Chief Medical Officer Dr. Moore uh, basically suggested that uh, he strongly recommends. And I just mentioned uh, anecdotally, I don't have any scientific evidence from my beginning, but just with the places I've been over the last four or five days, uh, I don't see too many people taking them up on this. I, there is a handful of people in some places, uh, but you know, there's a lot of questions that are raised as a result of this. Does a strong suggestion actually motivate people to maybe say, yeah, maybe I should for a while, or are they just ignoring this because of, of the last two and a half years? Yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, we're in a situation where we have to say, well, you know, what, what is, what's most appropriate for, from a broader public health perspective? Uh, and, you know, sure, sure, there's, you know, this debate between, you know, individual rights and, and uh, versus what, what's the best for the community. I think, you know, if you look at where, where we're at and, uh, you know, the situation we're facing with the, in essence, the, the triple wave of, of uh, COVID still bubbling along, influenza really ramping up and as as well as RSV we're, we're really if you look at that in comparison to where we were for COVID uh, at various times I you know we, I think we're very much in the same uh, vicinity of uh, you know sort of in terms of uh, may you know having the justification for bringing in a mask mandate that you know obviously there's uh you know, we're we're at a different point in the in the overall pandemic, but 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 we you know things have changed because of because of the the easing of the measures. We've really got this sort of catching up in terms of uh right in terms of rising uh, infections because of the the uh, those measures that we had had in place were protecting against the the other viruses for RSV and influenza as well. So so we're really at that point where we've we're saying it's it's you know it's a, it's it's the same but different uh, and and we need to be thinking about well you know if we if it was justified before well then what why isn't it justified now? Well, it, which raises the question about you know are we paying attention anymore? And I mean I saw a rather troubling report uh, uh, from uh, well uh, uh, Professor uh, Drulard from uh, Great Lakes University Environmental Research uh, who basically says that the number of children and babies with respiratory illnesses exceeds the capacity of the healthcare system. I think we all knew that, but he says more adult Canadians are going to die of COVID-19 this year than died in all of 2020, uh, which is kind of troubling and, and, and should scare the daylights out of us, but people don't seem to be paying attention to these, to these numbers now. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, part of it is that uh, it is also harder to get the numbers. Uh, if you look at the way, you know, you know, the, because of the, uh, the science table was, uh, you know, disbanded and brought back within uh, Public Health Ontario. And, you know, if you go back, go onto the Public Health Ontario website, the, uh, there's, there's a reasonable, there's a reasonable delay in what they're putting out there in, in terms of the, the, the data versus what they were before. The data was 
you know, pretty pretty up to date uh, previously, but now it's uh, I think the latest uh, latest week is is the week of November sixth to twelfth. So so we're sort of, you know we're basically two weeks behind on what's the official data out there, and so so in some ways it's really hard to know. So you've got to go based on you know anecdotal evidence, and so so uh, whereas you know the the various indicators you know even back you know two weeks ago were were indicating uh, you know everything on on the rise and so 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 there's there's multiple factors here now and and part of it is that aspect of do do we have the 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 you know the very up to date data that that we did when we were making those decisions previously well and you've talked to us in the past about some of the long term impacts which i think is, a lot of people may have just you know forgotten i mean they get on with their lives they're probably worried about inflation and a whole bunch of other things right now uh, but uh, some of the stats here, as more adult Canadians are going to die. We mentioned that eighty-eight uh, percent, rather eight percent, of vaccinated people uh, with COVID infections uh, won't require hospitalization, but could end up with long COVID, uh, which include cardiovascular and, and other major and ongoing health problems. Uh, we we don't pay them a whole lot of attention to that. I, I think uh, I, I I like our numbers. And you and I have talked about this when the the initial vaccination numbers came out, and, and Canadians have done by and large pretty well. I think we're kind of dropping the ball a little bit when it comes to some of the uh, the booster shots. Uh, but I get the sense, though, that a lot of people have said, yeah, I got my shot. Uh, I'm, I'm bulletproof now. I still got COVID anyway, so that just proves that the vaccines don't work, uh, which is not really uh, the, the right answer for a circumstance like this. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's this aspect of you know, multiple uh, layers of, of uh, measures and, and definitely you know, immunization uh, that the vaccination program is 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 definitely one one layer, and then you've got to say, well, what are the other layers that we add to that? And and you know, you know, despite the I suppose the sort of initial bumpy uh, starts in the pandemic in terms of you know mask the 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 messages around masking, that the evidence is pretty clear now that uh, masks and mask mandates do pr- uh, result in significant reductions in. Uh, COVID cases, as well as the other respiratory viruses. And so, uh, you know, if, and, and those mask mandates, uh, the evidence is pretty strong for reduction in hospitalizations and deaths, and and particularly for, for, for younger kids as well, uh, even though they, you know, they do, the younger kids do find it harder to, to keep the masks on and, and, and wear them as effectively. But, but overall, the evidence is pretty strong uh, and in terms of mask mandates being a being a, being an effective measure, and and if you think about uh, you know what we're talking about is individual behaviours, and and how do you uh, influence people's behaviours, then uh, you know sort of the the sort of aspects of the the motivational sort of strategies, what are the around recommendations, you know they can only go so far until you and and what we've seen in for you know pretty much most public health uh, interventions uh, ultimately end up. Requiring some level of uh, you know enforcement or, or requirements that, and and so so you know that's that's where we you know we really have to say uh, how how strongly do we believe the evidence and the ev- you know the evidence is there and and if so you know you know why why aren't we uh, why aren't we putting in the, these mask mandates particularly in particularly in the very high risk settings such as uh, you know childcare centres some you know school back into schools I know kids won't like that. Uh, uh, 
but uh, you know, definitely any any of these indoor environments where you have crowding uh, and you know, and crowding with uh, lots of people you don't normally uh, interact with, then then uh, you know, masking is is a you know is a very very good uh, measure to to take. And uh, you know, I think think it's it's for me it's moved. You know, sure, there's an individual uh, sort of decision. Uh, aspect to it but but it's also you know we, we talked about during the pandemic you know for the, to try and uh to try and take take a hold and, and control the pandemic we also have to take broader community measures and and everyone's a member of the community and so so it's about sort of working together again and so you know i'm not saying that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh sort of you know sort of see this as as an ongoing thing but but i definitely think that you know we're, we're at a point where we're uh masking mask mandates particularly in certain circumstances uh uh i think are a really good idea and should should be brought back in well exactly and it's as i i know some people say well yeah they're telling us this then they tell us this and just, but as you mentioned to us probably two and a half years ago uh we're learning as we're going along here and and you know we're learning more about long covid now because there was no long covid because the virus was new i mean so, so but these are the elements that that people are using as as justification but the reality here is that we know right now that there can be some long-term effects to this uh not always fatal but they can be very problematic to our overall health uh, and and we also know that this is an airborne virus, and you know, masking. We've known we've known for how many generations now that masking is a key defense against airborne viruses. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and if you think about it, uh, you know, when of of the various measures that you can can implement, sure, I can understand why some people are you know a bit more he- you know hesitant about uh, vaccinations. Uh, but you know, masking, you, you know, you're really not. It's not really impacting you that much, and and uh, you know the the evidence for particularly in schools were uh, evidence that's come out recently from the U.S. and and a number of other studies have really shown that when schools uh, withdraw the uh, masking, the, the the cases really rapidly rise, and uh, and and we know that. Uh, whereas you know I know that there's an argument around well how does that impact you know masks impact kids learning, uh, whereas. At this stage, there's the, the evidence is most strong for the uh, benefits of masking versus the the uh, the, the negatives of, of masking. So, so I think you know when you think about uh, an easy to implement measure that you know you know keep you know keep a mask in your pocket. You can sort of pull it out when you come into a certain circumstance. Then uh, then you know no, don't wear it. When you when you you know maybe outside and you you you're less crowded, you know it, it's a pretty easy measure to follow and and I think uh, you know one you know one of the things you know is that if if you go out looking for masks they're, they're harder to find and and you know one exactly. of the, one of the things that the uh, you know what we found overseas is to to really implement uh, masking effectively they've they've basically made masks virtually free and available everywhere and uh, you know and and uh, and also having the you know leaders uh, model mask wearing as mask wearing being a positive thing and so while we have our you know leaders sort of debating and not not you know being models for this being an effective measure then it's it's really difficult for the for the public to take it up as well absolutely uh, Thomas we'll have to leave it there for now thanks as always for this always appreciate our conversations yeah great thanks very much Take care. Professor Thomas Tenkate from uh, Metropolitan University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.